Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wright, says thank you for listening. Christian Soriano has created fashion designs for luminaries such as Oprah Winfrey, former First Lady Michelle Obama, Lady Gaga, and many more. An exhibition of his designs is on view now at Scatfash Museum of Fashion and Film. And later in the hour, City Lights producer Summer Evans hits the runway for a chat with Suriano. Plus, speaking of music, our series of local musicians in their own words today features Randy Michael of the band Solid State Radio. First... Addiction is a serious issue that affects millions of Americans each year. The Science Gallery at Emory launched its inaugural exhibition at Pullman Yards focusing on addiction. Hooked, When Want Becomes Need, is co-produced with the Science Gallery at King's College London. The immersive exhibition examines addiction and recovery through the intersection of art and science. Co-curators Hannah Redler-Hawes and Floyd Hall join us now via Zoom to talk more about the exhibition. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you, Lois. It's a pleasure to be here. Hannah, please tell us about the genesis of this project and how the partnership between King's College and Emory University began. Okay, so the real genesis goes back over 10 years when Science Gallery was first initiated at Trinity in Dublin. And the vision of the people who set that up was to create a global network of universities that through galleries called Science Galleries would create a porous relationship with their audiences, particularly looking at being quite future focused, looking at issues of the day 
and particularly interested in young people's views aged 15 to 25. And Science Gallery in London launched at King's College London in 2018 and the inaugural show was hooked. I was invited as an independent curator to work on it and the idea that Science Gallery London and King's had was to really dive into you know the neuroscience psychology medical and social aspects of addiction and recovery and as you've already mentioned this is such a fundamental aspect of being human for so many of us probably across the world and then when Science Gallery Atlanta was forming the whole Science Gallery International had conversations about which exhibitions might be good inaugural exhibitions and Hooked was chosen much to my great delight and so we've had the opportunity to reimagine Hooked in a different world in an American context in an Atlantan context and, and that's where we are today. Floyd eager to hear about the interactive elements in the exhibition. Why did Science Gallery want this to be an immersive experience? Well, Lois, I think that when we consider the intersection of, of art and science, very often scientists and artists are telling the same story, but the scientists are telling it through, through data and the artists are oftentimes telling that same story in terms of of how it feels and what we're going through. And so in this exhibition, we have moments where artists and scientists have collaborated on ways to communicate the journey of addiction, but, but not even thinking about it as just addiction. It's it's really a human experience in terms of what we all what we all go through in terms of the things that we like to do that feel good, that we that we enjoy. And then what happens when those things maybe get beyond our control to to be able to, to manage those. And so what we tried to do was foster moments where we can both understand the science, the neuroscience of that and, and what, what may happen in our brains, but also having some moments of empathy and understanding and being able to, to allow ourselves to surrender to those moments, those, those really human moments that something like addiction can foster. Is there a target age group particularly in mind for this show? Well, Science Gallery at Emory, and I think in the Science Gallery Network in particular, there's a focus on the 15 to 25-year-old age range as it relates to the ability to connect folks to science and, and get folks interested in science at, at an earlier age. But I always say this is for the youth and those young at heart. And so it is not meant to be exclusive. It is, it is meant to be inclusive. And so we, we hope that young folks in that 15 to 25 age range, as well as those beyond that, are intrigued and curious enough to connect with this exhibition and uh, come out for a visit. What questions surrounding addiction does this show examine? I think one of the first questions we wanted to ask is, is addiction, we wanted to challenge perceptions about what addiction is and to bring in the uh, reality and, and the perspective that it's a, a cycle of addiction and recovery. It's not a one-way street. But we also wanted to start with the question of what is addiction? Is everything we know about addiction wrong? Is it a crime? Is it a health issue? Is it a moral failing or just a pitfall of being human? Or maybe not even a pitfall of being human, but maybe just a part of being human. And that question is 
fundamental to many of the exhibits and, and the narratives in the show. But I think that when you've been through the exhibition and you've left it, I think that you'd see that we take the approach that addiction and recovery are a health issue and that, that it is a part of who we are, as Floyd said earlier, you know, it's a part of being human, that we are driven, you know, we want to ask questions about what drives us to seek pleasure, what drives us to want to escape from pain, and what is the moment where whatever that is, whatever that might be, has the capacity to cause us harm. And at that point, that's when we want to step in and ask some more questions. Mm. The very title of the exhibition seems to address the absence of blame or, or moral failure, as you mentioned, and emphasizes the disease of addiction. Was this intentional? Yeah, absolutely. So the title actually came from a quote I found from one of the original panel scientists, Dr. Carl Dyer at King's College. And he did an online lecture for, for students, which I watched. Where he said, you know, when does a like become a love? When does a want become a need? And the minute I heard him say that, I was like, boom, that is such a good way of describing to people like me who are not experts, who are just everyday people, what is the thing that happens when we move between having a drink and feeling like we can't control our drinking? Mm. Who are some of the artists featured in this show? For those visitors who are coming to the show here at Science Gallery, Atlanta. I can't wait for them to see the amazing uh, video installation by Rachel McLean. I can't wait for people to see the literally larger than life Atlanta-esque skyline installation by Marina Sky. Sarah Hobbs has created a really compelling, I think, space that really challenges us to think about chasing, you know, youth eternally. William Massey, I think, has created a really empathetic and, and I think moving interactive installation that allows all of us to bring something to it. Melanie Mancho's work, I think, along with Shana Khan's work, really helped frame the soul of the show where we get to really hear from people in their voices. And so there's a really wide range of, I think, screen-based work, object-based work, but all of, all of it falling into the narrative that we're trying to create, where I think that we're giving folks an opportunity to see themselves in this exhibition. And I'm, I'm really excited, I, I will add this, that the first thing that, that confronts people in the space is an engaging work by visual artist Paper Frank, um, who's based here in Atlanta. And so those are some of my favorites from the show. Um, Hannah, how about you? Yeah, well, one of the things that I really love about the exhibition is the way we've had the opportunity through the Science Gallery open call process and, and the merging of that open call process with our own curatorial research to bring some artists who are quite emerging and some artists who are, you know, really, really established, like Rachel McLean, like Blast Theory. And I think that it gives it a really good edge to have that mix of experience. So Blast Theory, a British artist who've been pioneering interactive work for, you know, 30 years now, 
And the piece of work they've made is called Short Periods of Structured Nothingness, which was made through a series of workshops with young people in the UK, uh, one of whom is American, as it happens, and exploring what are the things in people's lives that lead them to make decisions that may or may not lead to addiction. But the way it manifests in the gallery is through a kind of interactive telephone conversation that you have with some of these young people that really makes you think about what drives you. And, and that's where the title came from, Short Periods of Structured Nothingness. And one of the key pieces of research informing the show is whether addiction is something that happens when we're bored you know do we start doing things because we're bored and, and there's a lot of a lot of questions around that if you are just joining us this is city lights on wabe i'm lois wrights is speaking with hooked co-curators hannah redler hawes and floyd hall there is an interactive walk-in sculptural figure titled, We're All Searching for Rest. How do viewers interact with this installation? Lois, that's the William Massey piece that I, I mentioned earlier. And what really made that work so compelling and interesting to me from a, a curatorial perspective is that so much of, of William's work is found outdoors. William is a very accomplished public artist. And so it was really great to work with him to bring something or to bring his his aesthetic indoors. But but knowing William, he was really going to create something that had some scale to it, but also really connected with the human and the empathetic side of addiction. And so I think William's work acts as a bit of a summary piece for the show. And it gives visitors a chance to I will say, surrender something of their own in that moment, both with what they can leave with the work as well as entering inside of the work. Mm -hmm. I think you touched upon this a bit earlier. A video installation with first-person narratives discussing their experiences with addiction is also a part of the show. What can you tell us about addictive stories. Are these people from the metro Atlanta area? It was really great to, to foster some collaborations between artists and researchers in the Atlanta area. And Addictive Stories is one of those collaborations. Artist uh, Shana Khan collaborated with the Grady Trauma Project, which is an extension and part of Grady Hospital, to connect with members of the Atlanta community who had experienced some traumatic experiences in their lives that included addiction. And so being able to hear first person about someone's journey, I think really puts the rest of the exhibition in a bit of a perspective because we're, we're holding space for individuals to give of themselves and, and really unpack some of the real scenarios that they've experienced. If I could just build on that, uh, Lois, the, one of the things that's really significant about that is the way that we've built the show around being very inclusive and including voices of experience, so people with lived experience of addiction. So it's about addiction and recovery, but the voices of people who have really lived that are really strong all the way through it. And sort of feedback we get from people is that they don't feel, you know, stigmatised. They don't feel like it's voyeuristic. It, it, it feels very inclusive. What Floyd described and your follow-up, this really speaks to how an artistic approach to discussing these issues 
can benefit a broader audience, um, such as the Grady Trauma Center. Would you elaborate? Sure. We live in this space where, again, artists and researchers are, are telling some of the same stories, but the researchers are oftentimes telling it from the position of of data, which may be nameless and faceless. I think the artists in our community are able to contextualize some of those same moments, but in many ways give us the emotional language to communicate with that. And being able to put them together or provide room for connection or collaboration really helps, I think, leverage the power of art to connect more folks to science and research and learn more about or help hopefully even you know more so can explain the things that we're experiencing addiction is something that all of us are affected by whether it's individually someone we love or somewhere where we live and being able to hold space for both researchers and artists i think is just really important in a way that they can learn from each other and give us something collaboratively that maybe would not have been achievable if it were just one or the other hannah yeah, I think another really wonderful example is one of the new works, Tune Reward, by Summer Krinsky, working with Dr. Sam Sober. So Sam Sober does research into the way that little finches, birds, learn how to sing and how the dopamine pathway is essential for that. But what's interesting is that it, it there's the potential for his research to demonstrate how the dopamine pathway works. And the dopamine pathway is something that becomes hijacked by the substances that we can become addicted to. So working together, they've created a really incredible interactive singing experience and I won't say too much I think people should come and experience it but Dr Sober said you know in four minutes of interactive experience some has been able to communicate what he's saying through his research which he could never imagine being able to do. Oh how special. This exhibition is free of charge. How were you able to pull that off? I think the science gallery model and, and the, the, the intention is to try to foster access to this art and this science. And so making it free is a part of that. We've had incredible support from a host of donors and supporters in the Emory community. And I can't say enough about all of, all of the, the contributors who have worked behind the scenes to help us foster a space where we can reduce the barriers to amazing world-class art and world-class research. Mm. The subject of this exhibition can be weighty to unpack. Does this show leave viewers with hope for the future? Oh, definitely. We structured the narrative so that it starts with the idea of euphoria. So that's the first section that looks at the things that we do that give us pleasure, the things that we do that we you know, keep coming back to. And then we go through a section called speed of life, where we look at how interactive technology has really sped up the way everything happens, you know, sped up the way we shop, sped up the way we experience culture. Then we look at society in terms of questioning, is there a moment where things are beyond our own control? Are there things happening outside of us structurally in society through legislation, through social structures that have an impact on us? And then the very last section is called Harm to Hope. And that's where we hear these wonderful stories that Shane Khan and Melanie Mancho's participants contribute through their work and that William Massey takes on through his incredible sculpture. And what we want to demonstrate through that is it is 
a big subject. It is an emotionally draining and demanding subject. But that, that's the really important thing about it being about addiction and recovery, that there is recovery and there is strength to be found in that and there is hope to be found in that. Co-curators Hannah Redler-Hawes and Floyd Hall hooked when want becomes need, is on view at Pullman Yards through September 4th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. In a moment, City Lights producer Summer Evans hits the runway for a chat with fashion designer Christian Siriano. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. Christian Suriano's bold creations are on view at the Scat Fash Museum of Fashion and Film. The celebrity fashion designer entered the industry after winning Project Runway Season 4 in 2007. He has since created designs for luminaries such as Oprah Winfrey, former First Lady Michelle Obama, Lady Gaga, Lizzo, and many more. The exhibition People Are People is on display through October 9th. When City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with Siriano in person at the museum, she first asked about the name of the show. You know, I think we decided People Are People a while ago because it's something that I've like had kind of in my brand for a little while, but also really this is probably one of the first, you know, American designer shows that basically has size zero to size 22 on display um, in a fashion exhibit. So we really felt, and all these different types of cultures and. Um, ethnicities of people and so we really felt like it was very important to call it that. When in your yeah. life did you start thinking I need to be way more inclusive about designs because it's such a struggle in the fashion yeah. industry already? Yeah I, mean, I, I kind of always was really just because that's just what my who my customers were really early on my kind of world that I was submerged in I think always um, so I just looked approached it very differently than maybe other brands approached mm-hmm. it 
uh, we always had clients of all different ages and sizes and backgrounds, and I love that. So we kind of just celebrated that and kept it going. Yeah. yeah. I saw in a previous interview that you grew up kind of playing dress up with your mom and your sister. Mm-hmm. Do you think that gave way to you wanting to be in the fashion industry? Yeah, I mean, my mom was, you know, I think, I thought my mom was quite stylish, but I think my sister was really stylish and really loved clothes, and she also was a ballet dancer, so we were always backstage, you know, seeing a show in costumes and hair and makeup, and I would see these girls in warm-ups, and then they would transform into these, like, you know, the sugar plum fairies, and I always loved that, yeah. so that was very inspiring, and I think still is, like, I love a, I love the ballet, I love the opera, I love that world, um, yeah, it's just a beautiful fantasy. Have you made any designs for her? Um, oh, all the time. I dress them all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Oh, yeah. My mom and my sister get a lot of clothes and a lot of shoes. <laughs> so I was introduced to you as the world was, was Project Runway. And mm-hmm. You were the youngest winner at 21 years old, mm-hmm. which is so insane. Yeah, it's um, a baby. Ha- <laughs> have you watched that season since it aired? My original season? Yes, season four. I probably haven't seen it in, oh, God, maybe 10 years or so. Maybe I, maybe a little less. But, um, but no, yeah, not really. Mm-hmm. Are there any creations when you look back on that season that you were very proud of? Oh, I wish I had some of them. Um, I think they all got sold at an auction, Um, but they were really great. Yeah, there was great stuff. Like my early days of things, you know, when you have, I mean, when you start your career, you kind of make things that, you know, there's no rules. So Mm -hmm. how fun is that? Yeah. Now there's a little more rules. In what way would you say? Because you're like now work, it's a, it's a business, it's a brand we're looking to, you know, build and making clothes is also like it is a company to sell clothing Um, and then when you're doing something for a red carpet or for a person it's there's lots of rules because it's for them it's for their event it's what it I mean I don't always want to do what every person wants you know but you have to you you know you have to bend and work with your clients and and that can be fun Um, but you know when you're really starting out it's almost like you're so free Mm -hmm. and those those can be good moments right yeah a lot of learning moments. Probably. Yeah, to, of course. Yeah, yeah. How much is a collaborative process when you're working with a celebrity on a garment? Oh, my gosh. It can be very collaborative. It can be like you're really in it to the down to like the last tiny, oh, can you move this over half an inch? Um, <laughs> two, it can be nothing. Um, you know, a celebrity could come in and be like a try on a dress that you made for them and done. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Like it's wild. You know, I mean, I've made things in this room that you know, just weren't even really for the uh, celebrity to begin with. They were just for a fashion show or part of one of my collections. And then they get worn Mm -hmm. by a famous person. So it's awesome. So you have that celebrity contact you and say, hey, I saw that design on the runway. Yeah, it can be, it can be that, it can be an actual, actual celebrity person. It could be a stylist. It could be a manager. Lots of cooks in the kitchen sometimes. Yeah. Um, Yeah. One thing that I really love about your designs is the fluidity that you don't necessarily, you're not like, this is for men, this is for women. There's a lot of Yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah. And I think there's obviously some things that I think are more feminine than others, if you will say. But, But I think fashion, I mean, there are, I don't think there should be that type of, we shouldn't put ourselves in that box um, as people. You really should be able to wear what you want to wear. Like, um, I always thought that that was a bit weird that someone would say, like, oh, you can't wear this dress or blouse or top because you're female or male. That doesn't really make sense to me. Mm-hmm. So I've always tried to keep that 
a little bit more open. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the examples that came to mind was the viral garment that you made of the tuxedo gown for Billy Porter. Yeah. How did that idea for the tuxedo gown come about? Yeah. Um, I just really wanted to, you know, Billy wanted to look regal and, um, and appropriate for the Oscars, but felt like, you know, Billy is a little bit more daring with what he wears and he loves clothes that are feminine and he would love to he wear a skirt and that doesn't mean he's not he's more oh I want to wear women's clothing he doesn't think about it that way I think he thinks about it like he just wants to wear something fabulous mm-hmm. um, so that's kind of really what happened it was very organic and I was like let's try this skirt and like with this jacket maybe we make it a, more of a tuxedo but it's but he, what, do we like the volume it was really just quick actually in the moment mm-hmm. and then yes and then it became such a moment because the first man to wear a dress on the Oscars red carpet was a big deal for a lot of people a lot of young people too you know young kids being like oh wow I feel like I can wear what I want to wear now mm-hmm. that's pretty cool and now I feel like you see that all the time mm-hmm. you yeah, are really m- the trendsetter yeah <laughs> like much more I think it sometimes it takes someone to just just do it and then other people will follow because they feel like oh then it's like he was brave so maybe I can be brave mm-hmm. and why are we being brave it's just a dress who cares right <laughs> One of the pieces that are in the exhibit is um, Janelle Monae's Met Gala Uh Uh-huh. It's right when you walk in. Can you describe what that piece looks like for those who haven't seen it? Yeah. I mean, it really is like an abstract Picasso face in a way. Um, We wanted it to be very surreal-like. Her eye is beaded with this big big feathers and um, and it blinks on an automatic timer. It's very cool. Wow. But really, it was like this abstract face and I really wanted it to feel like you're completely transformed and that was really more of an artistic approach. Mm-hmm. It's obviously not wearable for every day, but, um, but really cool. One of my favorite things we've ever made. Oh, I know. It's just jaw-dropping as soon as you walk in. Have you ever dreamt up any of your designs? Like literally dreamed and then woke up and was like, I need to draw this out. I do that all the time, yeah. Things are really from imagination. I sketch every single piece that is in this room or that I've ever made. Um, comes from literally a pencil and paper, a pen, or I would say pen and paper, um, because I can sketch everything in pen. So, so you don't make mistakes? Is that why you choose pen? No, it's just, it, there is no mistake really, because it's mm-hmm. like a gestural idea. Mm-hmm. So like... That's what always I think is interesting about like when you're sketching or designing, the illustration doesn't have to be perfect because you're not making an illustration, you're making a garment. Mm-hmm. So it's all about the quick idea. Mm-hmm. So yeah, everything, every single thing in this room I sketched from something. Wow. Wild. It is. <laughs> um, can you tell me about the idea behind making this kind of a rainbow palette? So it goes from red and then bleeds into yellow. And yeah. Green yeah. We, we had the one wall was really our rainbow effect because I felt like that was really beautiful to showcase the clothes. I think it's very powerful that way. And then in the center, we have this really beautiful, powerful, purple, regal, royal moment. Um, then we have behind us right now is really a lot of the work in black, but you get to see so much of like the texture and the shape and the sculpture, mm-hmm. which I really, really love. And then we have some of the kind of nude, more, I don't know, mauve tones. And it's just kind of to show that like my work, I don't think is about one thing ever mm-hmm. necessarily, but they do group into worlds, I guess. Acclaimed fashion designer, Christian Suriano. His exhibition, People Are People is on view at the SCADFASH 
Museum of Fashion and Film in Atlanta through October 9th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, local author Wanda M. Morris and the story behind her legal thriller, All Her Little Secrets, amplifying Atlanta. This is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Last November, the Atlanta author Wanda M. Morris released her debut novel, All Her Little Secrets, to critical acclaim. The fast-paced legal thriller utilizes the writer's own background as a corporate attorney to shape the story, which explores race, corporate America, and the desire to protect family. Morris, who recently announced an upcoming sophomore release, spoke with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes in February and began with why she chose to write about the power of keeping secrets. You know, I think there is something about a secret that feels so intimate and personal. And when I was writing this book, I knew that I wanted a character who would be put in this really, really tough position where she had these ethical canons that she had to abide by as a lawyer, but she still had this moral dilemma of how do I protect the people that I love, specifically a brother who she has kept secret from even the people who are closest to her because he has had some trouble on the other side of the law. And so she is walking this very dangerously thin line of, if I reveal these corporate secrets, then I put my brother in danger. If I protect my brother, then I'd have to violate my ethical oath as a lawyer. So she is always walking this fine line of what do I do next? But at the end of the day, because the story, (laughs) I tell people, Despite the body count in this book, it really is a story about family. (laughs) And so at the end of the day, she has to decide between this family of people within this corporation or this family that she is born into. She has to make some tough calls. And of course, you know, every time she makes a call, it's the wrong one. It goes horribly wrong. And she has to get up. She has to start and fight all over again. But that was part of, you know, the grit of her character. But I think lawyers, I think I said it like in the opening sentences of the first chapters, you know, we have all these $10 terms as lawyers that we use to protect information and, you know, guard our clients. And what does that mean in the context of protecting the people that you love? And that's what I wanted to explore in this book. 
Yeah, well done. There's a lot of depth to this story, too. Aside from all the terrific twists, you paint an honest picture of some tough topics, including the challenges that face Black women in corporate America, right? Yeah, I think that that is a piece of my lived experience that did show up in the book. I have worked in predominantly white spaces and what that means for being the only one or the other in the room. Uh, It's definitely a different dynamic. Of course, this book is fictional. And so the things that you read in this book, you know, certainly they kind of came out of my imagination. But what I tried to do in exploring that experience was to show that oftentimes women, and particularly Black women, when they are in these spaces, have to do double time. They not only have to be, you know, successful and on their game, but, you know, they also have to be wary. They have to be the adult in the room, so to speak. Mm. And all those things just add yet another complex layer on just trying to do your job and be successful as a woman in corporate America, particularly in organizations where there is just glaring absences of black and brown people. It is just more work to be done. Certainly there is much more work to be done. For sure. And that is the environment that you wrote Elise into the company that she works for. She is one of the only people of color in the room at most times. And not only that, but one of the background elements throughout the book is there is consistently people protesting outside of this corporate law office. Yeah, I think that that is yet another dynamic in this whole interplay of being the only one. She works for an organization where there are no Blacks in the executive suite. And the few Black and brown people who do work for the company are, you know, in roles like security. And yet she still goes into this job every day because, you know, she has bills to pay. But it wears on her. One of the opening scenes, she's driving into the garage of her building and their protests going on because a group of Blacks have filed a discrimination charge against the company for lack of hiring and promotional opportunities. And, you know, she kind of has this moment as she's driving into the garage and she looks at these protesters and she wonders, you know, gosh, what would they think, you know, if they knew that I am in here And she questions her own self, like, you know, gosh, I take a paycheck from these people, and yet they don't hire other people that look like me. She has a best friend in the book who also kind of brings her to that vortex and says, you know, gosh, why do you work for a company where you're not valued and they don't value the things that you value? And those are tough questions for her. I think those are tough questions for anybody when you work in a space where you don't see representation or you work for an organization that is less than inviting because you do walk that fine line of I still have to pay bills, I have to feed my family. And so what do you do? And for Lise, she takes 
a promotional opportunity, even though she has misgivings, she has gut feelings that it might not be the right opportunity for, she takes it anyway because she thinks, well, maybe I can make a difference. I can fix and it from the that inside. We, right, right. I can fix it from the inside. And isn't that what we all want to do if there's a problem you know, maybe my being here and my being in the room will help. I can help them bring people of color in. And, you know, I can show that, you know, we deserve to be in places like this. Of course, it all goes horribly wrong. (laughs) (laughs) It does indeed. But that's what makes it such a fun thriller to read. Talking about the executive suite, there is a line in there that I had to laugh out loud. You paint a picture of a HR exec. And at one point, this character, her name is Willow. She says, I'm in HR. I don't see race. I only see people. And it just (laughs) literally made me start laughing because I know we all want to be that way, but that is not reality. Exactly. Exactly. That is so not reality. And, you know, it's interesting with all the characters, I tried to bring something into each of them that, you know, was realistic, that we've all kind of seen. And with her character, even Willow is kind of on this journey because she too, even though she's a white female, she's trying to navigate this very toxic environment as well. And so she kind of spews, you know, lines like that in the hopes that, you know, this comes from the good HR manager playbook. (laughs) So it will make me a good HR manager. Right. You know, this book is also very distinctly Atlanta. You have incorporated every area of town into it and so many things that if you are in Atlanta, and you even mentioned Snowmageddon at one point, which I was just (laughs) like, yes, this is my town. But you do. You travel through Buckhead, through East Atlanta, Midtown, Johns Creek, the West End. You talk about rowing on the Chattahoochee, news outlets by name. What made you decide to almost make Atlanta a backdrop character in this book? Yeah, you get it. That's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted Atlanta to be a character. I find the city just fascinating. I am originally from Ohio, but I've lived here for decades now. I met my husband, who's a native uh, of Atlanta, and, you know, we've raised our kids here. So I, this is like home to me. But I wanted the city to be a character as well, because it is a city that is full of dichotomies. I mean, at one point in America's history, the city was the epicenter of the military operations for the Confederacy. Mm. It is also the cradle of the civil rights movement. And today, as we speak, you can still see clearly evidence of both periods standing here in the city. You know, you've got John Lewis Parkway, you know, just down the road from Stone Mountain, where Confederate soldiers are etched in the side of a mountain. So the city is much like Elise Littlejohn herself. It is a beautiful, wonderful, complicated place with a complicated past. And I wanted to bring that out in the book 
I do mention different parts of the city because the city is so vast and it is so very different across, you know, everything from West End to Johns Creek. And that I think is what makes this city so vibrant and so good and so bad because we have so many different people and so many different cultures. And so, yeah, I wanted to make sure that the city stood out as well as all the other characters in the book. Yep. I think Atlantans will especially appreciate the care that you put into our city's part of the story. As mentioned before, it's your debut novel. So will you share what your path was like moving from attorney to author? I often tell people my overnight success only took 13 years. (laughs) (laughs) I actually started the first draft of this book, like I said, a little over 13 years ago. And I actually put it away, Kim, because I convinced myself that nobody is going to want to read a book about, you know, a middle-aged Black woman who works and deals with really awful people. And I put the book away for seven years. And then I had some health challenges and I got through them. And when I did, I realized I was just stretched thin. I was trying to be all things to everybody. I was working this really stressful job. I had three kids. And I said, you know what? I am going to start doing things that bring me joy. And writing has always done that ever since I was a young girl. And so I pulled that manuscript back out and it was awful. I mean, it was, it was terrible, <laughs> it was terrible, but that was okay because I convinced myself this time I can make something bad better. And I went back to work on it. I knew that I had a great story. I just didn't know how to translate that to paper So I started taking online courses Uh, when I could. I would attend conferences so that I could join a community of writers. I learned so much. I took a portion of the original manuscript and applied to the Yale Writers Workshop. And wonder of wonders, I got in. Hmm. And I learned so, so much. And I continued to do that. And I started to look for an agent. And that was a whole nother process. I call that my years of rejection. Yeah, um, <laughs> I could imagine that is tedious it and, and was hard just, emotionally. Yeah, it was it was rejected roundly. And, you know, the book was not ready mm. because given the topics that are covered in the book, I don't think people, you know, were attuned. And then we had 2020 happen. <sighs> And you had the Black Lives Matter uh, protests. You had the murder of George Floyd. And it was kind of a wake-up call for a lot of people. And they said, wow, is this really happening? And so I think it was then that people were more receptive to the issues that are covered in the book. And so I secured an agent. We went out on submission And 12 days later, we were in an auction for the book. And what an um, amazing success story. It it really, it is the stuff that dreams are made of. It it really is. But it it was a long and hard road. But I, I never lost sight of these wonderful characters. I always loved Vera and Elise and Sam and 
and all these characters. And, and I just had to believe in myself the way I believed in them. Atlanta author Wanda M. Morris. Her debut novel, All Her Little Secrets, is out now. And her follow-up, Nowhere to Run, will be released in the fall. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of Music, where we get to hear from Atlanta musicians in their own words. Hi, my name is Randy Michael from the band Solid State Radio. I would describe our music as um, cinematic pop, very romantic, a lot of lyrical dissonance. You know, I used to, when I would listen to records, uh, especially like, you know, Eno or Bowie records, you'd always think, you know, the record is like a film, um, the songs are the scene, and the band or singer, well, that's the star or the actor in that particular role. I got started in music in 1996 when I was about 10 years old. Begged my mom and pop for a guitar, didn't get it, and uh, I ended up getting it from a classmate in my fourth grade class. She gave me her brother's guitar, and I am forever grateful. The story of Ready, Steady, Go. Quite simple. That's what happens when your good girl goes and you stay at the pub way too long in the daytime. You come home and you're hammered and you watch Fast Times at Ridgemont High and you write this little poetic drivel and you get your, you know, your, your two minute or three minute pop song out of it. inspires me as a songwriter are really, really good lyricists. Bob Dylan, Tom Petty, Alex Turner, Mark Knopfler, Phil Lynott, guys that make you close your eyes and you can picture everything that's going on and you're immediately on their side, whether they're right or wrong. New York Calls is a whole different thing. As I said before, I like, really like you know, cinematic pop. And uh, I wanted to do something that was very, you know, Goodfellas, Phil Spector, Christmas, Sleigh Bells. I just like to, like to paint audio pictures, really. So you can listen to it in headphones and close your eyes and 
sort of put yourself in that scene. a show coming up June 11th at the Earl with the Sweet Things. Doors are at 8 p.m. And uh, we're working on a record right now. We're finishing it up, putting the final touches on it. And uh, hopefully we'll have that out by August. Thank you so much for having me. Truly appreciate it. Randy Michael of the band Solid State Radio and our series, Speaking of Music. Solid State Radio will play The Earl this Saturday, June 11th, opening for The Sweet Things. Finally today, five Atlanta improv companies are coming together for a one-night-only comedic event on Friday evening. Monsters of Prov will be split into two shows. The 8 p.m. sharing features Blacktop Circus, Whole World Theater, and Dad's Garage. The 10 p.m. show includes Laughing Matters and Village Theater. The Atlanta Improv Comedians will gather under one roof at Dad's Garage Theater. Masks, as well as proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test are required. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear from the director and star of Theatrical Outfit's new production, Lady Day at Emerson's Bar and Grill. Plus, Chris Escobar, owner of the Plaza Movie Theater, will tell us about the historic theater's upcoming renovations. City Light senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary, but when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate, and thanks.